Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Hey, I'm Rebecca, and today I am here with Dr. Sean Beckman, and we are going to be talking a little bit about something that everyone is talking about right now. But before we get started, uh, Dr. Beckman, can you tell me a little bit about what you do at Stetson University? Sure. So uh, I'm an assistant professor of biology here at the university. My primary uh, research focus is in disease ecology, uh, particularly diseases that can be transmitted from non-humans into human beings, whether that be directly or through some sort of other animal intermediate like a tick. So most of my research focuses on tick-borne diseases. Okay, so you've studied a lot about Lyme and Rocky Mountain spotted fever and these things. All the things I love to do in my lab, yes. Very interesting. <laughs> I might have to have you come back and tell us more about that on another episode. I'd love um, to. All right. Well, let's start with the questions that everyone really wants to know the answers to, and then we will move more into the biology side of things. There's a lot of misinformation going around, I know, and so we want to try to stick with facts. Of course, things are being updated quickly, so we're going based on what we know about this right now. What can you tell us about the coronavirus as we know it now? Sure. So, uh, and I literally just checked before I got on with you so that I could try to have the most up-to-date information possible. Right now, we are at just over 9,800 cases worldwide of this, uh, and I believe the death toll is either approaching or exceeded about 200 at this point in time. Uh, the thing to keep in mind is that I think the number I just saw was 9,834 cases. All but 111 of those are in China. So there is very little of this disease outside of China. And the people that are being affected by this are predominantly adults. I think the last number I saw was that the youngest person to have this is 36 years old. Uh, so most of the deaths, if not all of the deaths, are in people that are elderly or somehow otherwise immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. I think we get a lot of information about this thing is spreading quickly. There is a lot of it, and that is certainly legitimate. Uh, and we hear that people are dying from it. But when you get into the nuts and bolts of it, it's largely focused in one portion of the world, which is unfortunate, but it has a benefit to people outside of that area. And the people that are becoming severely ill and dying as a result are the same type of people that would be coming severely ill and dying from other types of similar respiratory illnesses. Right. So seniors and people who have weakened immune system seem to be the most at risk for contracting, Absolutely. for death from this yes. disease. And Absolutely. how actually, can you tell us how the virus is actually spread? Sure. So there, there's two parts to that. Um, so coronavirus is in general, belong to a group that includes the common cold, um, but also people probably think of the SARS epidemic from almost 20 years ago and then the MERS epidemic from 2013, which were both also coronaviruses. Uh, in both of those cases, as well as in the case with the current coronavirus epidemic that we're talking about, it's a virus that has crossed a species barrier. So it's a virus that we know bats harbor coronaviruses. 
And every once in a while, one of these coronaviruses crosses over a species barrier, whether that is into another animal and then from that animal into a human or directly into humans is still yet to be determined with this one. Uh, but so we get this transmission between species. And then once it's in the human population, we get direct transmission between people. Uh, that direct transmission, though, is going to necessitate some sort of airborne fluid particle. So sneezing, coughing, touching a surface that somebody has just sneezed and coughed on, and then putting that particle, putting your hands into your mouth, your nose, your eyes. There's got to be some way for the virus to get from the first individual into the respiratory system of the second. Okay. There's a couple of questions I want to ask from what you just said. But first, um, the first thing that popped into my mind is how long can the virus actually survive, for example, on a shipping crate coming from China? Great question. And, and that does vary to some extent. We know that coronaviruses in general do not survive more than a few hours outside of the body under normal uh, circumstances. So if you get um, if you get virus onto something like a shipping crate, it's not going to survive terribly long. In certain settings, these viruses can survive for longer periods of time. And there's been some research that's shown that in hospital settings, for example, where you have lower, uh, where you have a lower temperature and they're sitting in one place and not exposed to environmental uh, disturbances, that they can survive for extended periods of time. And that type of research has led to increased work in cleaning and maintaining hospitals and medical environments. But when we're talking out in the world, uh, like on a shipping crate, we're literally talking a few hours that this can survive outside of the body. So by the time it gets from China to a port someplace else, it's not really a concern any longer. Okay. I'm sure a lot of people have wondered about that. So I wanted to ask the other question that you're, um, that came to mind when you were saying that, uh, is so compared with percentage wise people who die from this virus, I mean, people die from the flu virus here in America every year, percentage wise, how do they compare? Uh, so it, it's night and day to be honest. And what I mean by that is not that this coronavirus is substantially worse. It's actually much less when we look at it. So if you look at it at this point, there's been approximately 200 deaths out of approximately 10,000 cases. So we're looking at, you know, the numbers I've seen banded around are somewhere about a three to 5% mortality rate with this, which is high for sure. But when you look at the flu, for example, just in the first month of 2020, there have been 20,000 flu deaths in the United States, and 54 of them are infants. We are way more likely to get the flu and to suffer a severe case of the flu than we are to have issues with this. And when we look at the deaths with this coronavirus, every death has been in China. And the grand majority of them are in the Wuhan area, in the Hubei province, where this virus is initiating from. Um, and again, they're in the elderly and the immunocompromised there. Right. And in Wuhan, I hear that the virus started in an animal market. Can you expound on that a little bit? Sure. So the, the I don't want to say the belief, but the best hypothesis we have at the moment 
is that it initiated from an open air animal market. So there are animal markets in other parts of the world where animals are bought and sold. Um, animals are kept in cages and then they are bought and sold there. And you have multiple different species of animal in these markets and they're in close contact with large numbers of people walking through those markets. Uh, well, what can happen in these cases is you can get a sick animal that then can potentially transmit that either to other members of the same species or even across species. And so we know these coronaviruses initiate in, uh, originate, I should say, in bats. Uh, we don't know for sure if it went directly from a bat in an animal market into a human or if it went from a bat to another species and then from that species into humans. There's been some talk that it may have gone through a chicken, uh, from the bat to the chicken to a person. There was some talk that it possibly was a snake. Uh, I, I find that somewhat hard to believe uh, because snakes have much lower body temperatures than mammals do and than birds do. And so it's mm -hmm. very unlikely that a virus that's capable of surviving in a bat and a human would be able to survive in a snake. Um, in the case of the SARS, epidemic that we saw in 2003, it started in bats, but it got uh, transferred to a group of mammals called palm civets. And then it moved from palm civets, which are a group of carnivores, into humans. In the case of MERS, it went from bats into a camel population. And then the camels wound up infecting people. Uh, this can happen through direct contact. You know, a In the case of MERS, a camel coughs or spits, and the aerosol particles got into the respiratory systems of people that were riding or driving those camels. Uh, same type of thing with the palm civet. So, you know, there's been concerns about people eating raw wild animals and the, or live animals, and that's how it got in. That, that's a possibility, but more than likely than not, it was probably respiratory transmission. I see. Because m for the most part, it, the um, virus is transmitted from coughing, sneezing, and that sort of thing. Yeah, th this is a virus that targets the respiratory system and right. lives in the respiratory system. And so to be transmitted, more likely than not, it was from respiratory system to respiratory system. Okay. Well, um, so now my next question is, is asymptomatic transmission, is that occurring? Is it possible? That's a phenomenal question. And right now there's some conflicting information out there on it. Uh, up until a couple of days ago, the World Health Organization and the CDC was saying that there was no evidence of asymptomatic transmission whatsoever. Right now, there's been a couple of cases reported in Germany uh, in the last couple of days that suggest asymptomatic transmission might be possible. There was uh, a oh, is this woman, the Shanghai woman? Yes, the Shanghai, this woman from Shanghai who went to Germany on a business trip, came in contact with people and those, uh, one of those people came down with a respiratory illness that was that he actually got over really, really quickly and didn't think anything of and secondarily tested positive that it had been this coronavirus. Uh, and then some of his coworkers, a couple of them, I don't want to say some, I don't want to raise alarm, but a couple of his coworkers also came down with it. And the question is whether those transmissions occurred completely asymptomatically or not. So we're not sure at this point, but it seems quite possible that asymptomatic transmission can occur. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you see any of the videos from people in China, which, you know, having been to China twice myself, people always, I mean, uh, the majority of people are wearing these surgical masks and face masks. We even wore them in Beijing for the pollution, but how much, how, how much do these protect people from this virus? So let me preface this by saying any protection is better than no protection. So if you want, if you are concerned and you think a face mask might help you, a face mask is going to, it's not going to hurt you and it might help. Um, face masks can prevent aerosol particles from getting into your nose and mouth. They can certainly reduce the number of aerosol particles that are going to get into your nose and mouth. Um, are they a necessity? Well, it depends on where you are. If I were walking around Hubei province right now or other parts of China where there's a lot of this uh, virus, I would be wearing one myself just to reduce the risk of transmission. Here in the United States, do people need to be walking around with a mask on? Probably not. We only have six cases here in the United States. Um, only one case has actually been transmitted within the United States, and it was someone who was living with someone who had been to China and was diagnosed with it. So there's very close contact for an extended period of time. So are these face masks really necessary? I'd say it depends on where you live, but are they going to hurt you? No. And can they help you? Absolutely. Uh, so yes, they, they can reduce transmission. I think the best thing that we can do to reduce the likelihood of transmission of this or any virus is following good hygiene. Um, washing hands regularly, cleaning surfaces that people cough and sneeze on, not putting your hands in your mouth, nose, eyes, because these are all ways that these respiratory illnesses get transmitted. And so following good hygiene is really your best bet, especially this time of year when we're already in cold and flu season, you should be doing that sort of thing anyway. Right. Public school is actually closed where I live because of colds and flu. Um, and in several other counties around this area. So I think it just adds kind of to the heightened awareness about everything and how easily things can be transmitted. So when it comes to the symptoms, what, what can people, I mean, obviously we're not talking about a lot of people in the U.S., but people who are concerned, um, what, what kind of things would people be looking out for? Uh, so again, preface this by saying that the symptoms that you're going to see with this are very similar to the symptoms that you're going to see with a cold or a flu, or even in some cases with allergies. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you should be concerned about this is if you're coming, if you've recently been in contact with someone who has recently been to China or someone who you know has this, which is highly unlikely given that there's only six people in the United States right. that have been diagnosed with this. But if you have recently been to China yourself, or you are in contact with someone who has recently been to China and you begin to develop cold or flu-like symptoms, a cough, respiratory uh, upset, uh, you know, mucus, a fever, certainly you should, be see you should probably be seeing a doctor anyway if you have those things. But if you have that and you've also been in contact with somebody that is at risk, you should certainly be seeing a doctor and letting them know that. That way they can... Uh, collect a sample and screen you for this. The big thing with this particular coronavirus compared to other respiratory uh, illnesses is that when we think of a cold, we think of sneezing, congestion, coughing, lots of upper respiratory symptoms. Uh, this coronavirus seems to have an increased propensity 
towards targeting the lower respiratory system. And so we're getting uh, secondary development of bronchitis and pneumonias uh, with this particular coronavirus. And that's why severity um, and, and death is more of a concern is because once things settle into the lower respiratory system, if you're immune compromised or you're immune deficient or you're an elderly individual, those things tend to be more severe illnesses. Right. And so two things with that. One, um, when you said uh, recently traveled to China, you're saying within the last several weeks. Certainly. Um, the first reported case of this coronavirus came at the very, very end of December. Um, the research into this coronavirus is indicating that it hasn't been in the human population much longer than that. Uh, so that the, looking at what we call genetic variation, the amount of variation there is within this virus in the human population, it's a recent addition to the human population, probably the very end of November. So if you've been to China in the last few weeks, literally the last eight weeks, you might have cause for concern. Um, with that being said, the incubation time on this virus from when people get it to when they become symptomatic is looking like it's in the two-day to 14-day range. So if it's been more than a month since you've been to China and you haven't had any symptoms, I wouldn't be really terribly concerned about this thing suddenly cropping up. Right. And then the second thing I um, was thinking of is pr uh, treatment. So because this is a virus, it is not probably treated with antibiotics. How do they treat people who have this condition? You're absolutely right. Antibiotic therapy doesn't work on viruses. It works on bacteria. So typically what we would do with something like this is target it with antiviral medications. The issue with this coronavirus is it is so new that we don't know what antivirals work on it or if any of the current antivirals that are out there are working on it. And that's ongoing research right now on that. So there is no particular antiviral that has been recommended for use. So what most of the treatment is at this point is it's symptomatic treatment. Uh, the same type of thing that if you developed, if you go to the doctor and you're not feeling well and they say, oh, it's viral. Um, so go home and treat your fever and take this for mucus production. They're treating things symptomatically at this point in time. And if people develop more severe illness, then they're uh, implementing respiratory care, oxygen, and potential hospitalization. Uh, but in general, it's symptomatic treatment at this point in time. Right. And with the, I'm pretty sure the U.S. State Department has re not restricted travel, but they've issued a travel advisory. So obviously, if you are an immunocompromised person and you're planning to go to China, maybe not the best time to do that right now. I mean, I'm sure even healthy people probably don't want to take a risk of that right now. Can this virus mutate? The short answer to that is yes. Any virus can mutate. Uh, viruses inherently tend to mutate with some frequency. Um, with that being said, the type of virus that we have here, um, the type of genetic makeup it has, it is less prone to rapid mutation than other types of viruses are. For example, um, when we think of mutating viruses, people commonly think of the HIV virus, uh, which has a very, very high mutation rate. That's because it's, it's 
what's called a retrovirus. Uh, and so there's, when it copies itself in cells, lots of errors get made. And those errors inherently are mutations. Uh, there is a lower mutation rate with the types of viruses that we see uh, with coronaviruses. And so yes, mutation is possible. Yes, mutation can occur and likely will occur, but not mutation that is likely to present us with some sort of superbug overnight or anything of that nature. So um, like with most of our coronaviruses, this is the type of thing where unfortunately it's going to hit some peak stage. Uh, containment is going to be effective beyond that point, and it's probably going to peter out on its own through hygiene and containment methods um, rather than becoming some truly pandemic thing. Okay. Um, some people in the community have submitted some questions they wanted me to ask you. I think we've covered how concerned we should be, uh, what the symptoms are. And then I have another question that you may or may not want to answer because this is kind of a conspiracy theory almost. It says, is China being truthful on the numbers? And if the numbers are greater, what is the benefit to not reporting the truth? I'll take a crack at that. Okay. Um, the second part first, there isn't a benefit. To, at this point, there's no benefit to not reporting the truth. You're looking at something that there are over 9,000 cases of this virus confirmed within China. People are avoiding going to China and with good reason. I don't think downplaying them at this point is really beneficial in any way. Uh, the second side of it is it's not just the Chinese government that is reporting this. The World Health Organization is heavily involved mm -hmm. in this. That is a multinational a non-governmental organization that is involved in collecting data on these cases and reporting these cases. So if the Chinese government were looking to suppress information on the number of cases, I think they would have stopped well before 10,000 cases uh, right. in what they were reporting. Uh, so I don't think we have any reason to believe that, the, that they're underplaying what's going on here. I think there's a, there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of good information out there with regard to the transmission of this, uh, where it's coming from and how many cases there are. Uh, at this point, we're seeing over a thousand cases a day for the last couple of days being reported, but the numbers appear to be kind of consistent at this point. I think we know what we're looking for now and they're testing for it. And so we're getting really good numbers coming out as to how many cases are being reported daily and accurate cases. Um, I, I hate to, you know, put myself out there and say that we're plateauing at this point. Um, but the what information coming out from the last few days seems to indicate that we're kind of hitting a high number of daily cases being reported, but a consistent number of daily cases being reported. So I don't expect we're suddenly going to get a drop off in the number of reports, but I also don't think we're going to see massive spikes over where we're at now either on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. I did see where they were trying to quickly construct new hospitals in China. And I actually have a friend in China who messaged me her concern about people who were not able to have access to proper medical treatment. Um, how big of a concern is this? I mean, how underprepared are they there? I think that is the really good question. Um, I think the spread of this within China, particularly in central and eastern China, has been quick. I think they are responding as best they can to what they're dealing with, but we are dealing with areas of the world where there are lots of people in relatively small spaces. Um, 
I don't think it's an accident that nearly every fatality is in the Wuhan area. Um, you know, Shanghai has reported hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases of this with zero fatalities. Uh, Shanghai is a big city. Shanghai has really good access to healthcare. I think it's the areas where healthcare access is less readily available. Either your more rural areas or your areas where there are lots of people in a small space that you're going to be more likely to see a little bit more spread and certainly more severe cases and fatalities. And I think the, they are trying to respond as best they can, but I, I don't think anyone's ever really ever prepared for this sort of thing to come up. And when it does, you respond as best as you can. I think they're doing a good job, but obviously we're underprepared for a massive uh, epidemic of a coronavirus. And I think over time and in the coming days and weeks, they'll catch up with it more effectively. Containment will be much more effective. I think they've done a really good job of preventing it from getting out. I think that's why we've seen so few cases, you know, less, just over 100 cases outside of China. They've done a really good job of preventing it from getting out of China. Um, and they've done a really good job in the larger cities of controlling it. It's now containing and controlling in these more rural areas and more population dense areas that they're working on. Right. And, and they're I getting there. They are getting there. It just, it takes more time, obviously. Yes. And I think that's a big concern for the World Health Organization. If the virus is able to spread outside of China, um, one of the biggest problems I can see happening is places where people commonly don't have access to good medical care. Um, there are places in the world where people don't have access to, you know, doctors just, you know, as easily as we do here in the United States and even in some parts of China. So I think that is one of the big concerns. And I think that's part of why maybe, what are your thoughts about that or why they are wanting to make sure they restrain it? I think there's a reason that the World Health Organization declared a global epidemic yesterday. Right, right. And that is because they want to contain this thing. They know there is the that person-to-person -person transmission occurs. There's now this possibility of asymptomatic transmission. They didn't declare a global epidemic because it's spread globally um, and because there's massive cases outside of China. But I think they want to raise awareness and target it effectively to make sure it stays that way, to make sure that it stays, by and large, uh, an Asian, and particularly a Chinese problem at the moment, and that it can remain contained and that instead of getting spikes in numbers of reports per day, we can start to get decreases in number of reports per day and that we can reduce the likelihood of transmission and get this thing contained. And so that's why they're taking, you're exactly right, that's why they're taking the steps they're taking is because they don't want it to get out. The Chinese government doesn't want it to get out, but neither does anyone else. Mm -hmm. No one wants it coming into their country and the World Health Organization doesn't want a pandemic on their hands. And so they're taking the appropriate steps to make sure that doesn't happen. And comparatively speaking, U.S. hospitals would be prepared for something like this, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Um, you know, U.S. hospitals are dealing with flu crises this time of year on a regular basis. There's no reason to think that U.S. hospitals are not prepared to handle uh, coronavirus, especially relatively few cases of it, 
the more cases you get, the more load that would place, and, and we're nowhere near concerned about that. But U.S. hospitals would certainly be able to handle that versus, as, as you've mentioned, some developing countries where healthcare is not as, the healthcare infrastructure isn't as good as it is in the U.S., you'd have much greater concerns in those places. And I think that's what the World Health Organization is worried about. They're not worried about a few cases getting into the U.S. They're worried about spread of cases throughout Southeast Asia and having mm -hmm. issues there. And so they want to contain it and prevent that from happening. And how quickly can studies be done? I mean, when something like this comes up and they're like, oh, this new study, da-da-da, how, how quickly do they do studies and what does that look like? Um, you know, a few years ago, I would have said that takes time. Um, but in the information age we are in, in the age of social media, in an age where people can talk on a computer like this uh, in different parts of the world and communicate and where information can be put out really quickly, studies can be done really, really fast. Uh, the genome from the first, from one of the first cases of the virus, uh, it's a relatively small genome. There's only about 30,000. When we look at uh, genetic material, we talk about it in terms of bases. Bases are letters. They're, they're little bits of information. There's only 30,000 of those uh, in this virus. By comparison, in the human genome, there's 3.2 billion pieces of information. So this is tiny. So they were able to sequence that really, really quickly and made that information public almost immediately. Since that was done, 28 other genomes have been developed from it in other cases. So they're getting information out really fast. Mm -hmm. And because they're sharing it publicly, it's multinational. So it's being approached by private companies, it's being approached by non-governmental organizations, it's being approached by governmental organizations. Everyone's on this to try to figure out how to deal with it. And so studies are literally coming out daily on information on what is the genome, what's in the genome, what things can we target in it, what is symptomology in patients looking like, what is transmission looking like. Uh, as quick as you can get the information and write the information, it can get out there. And so there are studies that are being done in the course of a week or less. It's one of the beautiful things about the information age we live in is that 20 years ago when SARS was an issue, this wasn't able to be done nearly as quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, the genome took months to collect for SARS. And it's actually a very similar genome to this. So it took months to get that done. Here it took days. And so even though we don't have the answers yet, they're going to come to those answers a lot quicker with this, which is great news. Okay. And what about the um, possibility of vaccines? Um, vaccines, are in, vaccines are being studied. I don't want to say they're in development. I really don't know the developmental stage, and I'm, I'm not in uh, the know on that sort of thing. But I know that people are doing research to develop a vaccine or to attempt to develop a vaccine. Target dates, I've heard on that very dramatically. Uh, I've heard some groups saying that they are targeting vaccines for safety studies starting hopefully in April. So we're looking at three months. I've heard other estimates, and I think they're more realistic, that are talking, you're not, you wouldn't have a vaccine to market on this in, until six months to a year. Um, what happens with viruses like this, and the same thing was done with SARS and the same thing was done with MERS, is you immediately start looking into a vaccine on the chance that this thing doesn't peter itself out, that containment isn't successful, um, because you need a solution long-term if that happens. 
However, what happened with SARS, what happened with MERS, what happens with most of these epidemics is containment is effective. Containment keeps it in a geographic area. You eliminate cases outside of that geographic area. And then you use hygiene and other protocols to reduce the number of cases in that geographic area. And within a few months, the disease peters itself out before a vaccine ever comes to market. And so the vaccine winds up becoming unnecessary. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very important that they're doing vaccine research. It's very important that they're doing vaccine development in case it is necessary, but in all likelihood, it will not be necessary. And how is it comparable to say like when they um, develop these flu vaccines and it's a different strain of flu? I mean, is that something that could happen? Is it something that could happen? Yes. Is it likely to happen? No. Um, when we're looking at this coronavirus, and I think the, it doesn't have a cool name yet, so it's the 2019 novel coronavirus, 2019 NCOV for short. When we're talking about this, we're talking about one virus. We're talking about one strain of one virus. Mm -hmm. So should they develop a vaccine, it will target one thing. When we talk about the flu, there are 131 different known strains of influenza A and B out in nature. When they develop a flu vaccine, that flu vaccine typically targets three to four of those. You, you just can't do much better than that in a particular year. And so when right. you do a flu vaccine, there's a lot of prediction of what are going to be the dominant strains of flu this year, because those are the ones we're going to target. That's why you run into lots of issues with the flu vaccine of its effectiveness. If the flu season starts early, before vaccines are readily available and you get lots of cases quick, you outpace the amount of vaccine that's available. Or if you wind up having a strain that pops up that isn't being vaccinated again, you get lots of flu cases. When we're talking about this particular virus, we're not talking about that. We're talking about there's one version of this virus. And so if they develop a vaccine for it and that vaccine is necessary, it's going to be effective. I see. I see. Very good explanation. Thank you. My first thought when I started reading about this is, why are people concerned about a virus that's going on in China? You, the, people are dying with the flu right here in America. Absolutely. And I think that's become one of the sad byproducts of this is that people are so worried about something that is happening a world away. And understandably so. This is not trivial. And there are people dying. And it is a horrible situation in China. But they're so concerned about what might be coming from China that I think they're forgetting to worry about what is here. And yes. the common cold, it can cause issues in immunocompromised individuals and the elderly and result in severe illness. The flu certainly in there, it's a bad flu season this year. Uh, you know, 20,000 deaths in a month is not a joke. Um, it's really bad. They're talking it's probably going to be one of the worst flu seasons in modern history. And I worry, like you, that people are so focused on what's happening a world away that they're not properly worrying about what's happening here in this country. I think what you said is really important and that's that people are so hyper focused on this and I'm not at all downplaying what's going on in China. I have Chinese friends that I care very dearly about and I am concerned about them but for my own health and the health of my family I'm concerned about the flu that's going on. Like I said the public schools are shut down because right. of flu. Absolutely. It's, so, it's bad. <laughs> it really is bad. And unfortunately, like you're talking about the flu vaccines, I feel like it's so hit or miss. Absolutely. It very much can be that some years it's great. And then other years it's not. And this year it appears like 
the flu got ahead of the vaccine in that the flu season started early and it started hard. And as a result, we got a lot of cases early. It looks like what we're dealing with right now this year is predominantly H1N1, which is in the flu vaccine, which is good news for people that are vaccinated against it. But because it started fast and it started hard, it got a lot of people before vaccinations were even really available or a lot of people had gotten a chance to get them. And so we're having a really, really bad season. That's for sure. Can you think of any questions that I may have overlooked or any information that you feel like is pertinent that we need to make sure we get out there? Two things, and and not that you haven't asked about it, but I would say be informed, but don't panic. Uh, Here in the US, like you and I have been talking about, there's very few cases of this, and the cases that do exist are being well monitored. Um, People that are coming into the country from places where coronavirus is occurring in China are being monitored as they're coming in the country. People that are being flown out of China back into the US are being quarantined for 72 hours so that they can be tested to make sure that they don't have the coronavirus. There's no cause for panic here in the US. There is reason to be informed though. And there is reason to be aware of what's going on. And there is reason to follow good hygiene just because of the time of year it is in general. Washing hands, you know, if you cough, cough into your sleeve. Um, Don't stick your hands in your face and your mouth. These are all just good hygiene practices normally, but especially this time of year when we've already got the cold and the flu going on. So be aware, but don't panic about it. And don't worry about preparedness. Um, There's misinformation out there for sure. I've seen things from, uh, well, you know, if you uh, take cannabis oils, it's going to protect you against this thing so you don't have to worry about it. And if you start taking colloidal silver, you don't have to worry about this because it won't be able to affect you. Those things are not going to prevent you from getting a cold. They're not going to prevent you from getting this coronavirus either. So don't start, you know, don't start believing everything you read and collecting lots of misinformation. The Center for Disease Control is a really great source on this. And the World Health Organization is an even better source on this. Mm -hmm. They have really great websites that they're updating on a regular basis get your information from there and don't freak out about something that isn't knocking at your back door. I promise. Very, very good information. Well, Dr. Beckman, thank you so much for being here. And I'm going to leave a link in this podcast episode. So if you're uh, listening to it on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, make sure you go to the blog post because I will leave a link to the CDC's website. I actually had already copied and pasted where they have kind of a prevention little thing, basically what you just said about washing your hands and avoid touching your face. So make sure you go check that out and leave a comment here for Dr. Beckman. We really appreciate him taking the time out of his schedule to come and inform us with good facts about this. So thank you again, Dr. Beckman. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please write and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.